You're with SBS Radio. Find more great stories in your language at sbs.com.au. SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yama, welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program today, we have a conversation with three members of the 2022 Indigenous Marathon Project Project Squad taking part in the New York and Athens Marathons. As you'll hear when they cross the line today for those participating in the New York Marathon or next Sunday for those competing in Athens, the finishing line of the 42-kilometer run is just the beginning of a new journey for the squad. A journey towards a healthier lifestyle for themselves and promotion of wellness and healthy living in their respective communities. In the program, we also explore the flood disasters across Australia with communities across New South Wales and Victoria bracing themselves for more flooding despite the rain easing over the weekend in some regions. In the program, we also look at the ongoing COP27 environmental summit underway in Egypt. As you hear, the summit will be dominated by the issue of who should pay for the loss of damage caused by a warming planet. All these stories and many more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy erected outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, traditional owners seek landmark Fortescue Metals case to be heard on country in remote WA. Australia bids for 2026 UN Climate Summit at a conference in Egypt. And doubts raised about the federal government's industrial relations bill. Traditional owners have asked for a landmark native title case to be heard on country in remote WA instead of over conventional courtroom. Yindibandi traditional owners want their compensation claim in a long-running claim against mining magnate Andrew Forrest's Fortescue Metal Group to be held on country. Earlier this year, the Yindibandi Aboriginal Corporation, YAC, asked the federal court to make a ruling on compensation after negotiations over a land use agreement failed. YAC told the court it wanted to call about 20 witnesses across 10 days with sessions to be held on country near the Solomon Hub and in the town of Robon, where most Indibandi people live. On-country hearings would allow Indibandi people to share experiences of cultural loss which they say were caused by the mine. The federal government says it is still well represented at Egypt's COP27 climate summit despite the absence of Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. 
Minister for International Development and the Pacific, Pat Conroy, is among those attending as he pushes Australia's bid to co-host the 2026 UN Climate Conference with Pacific Nations. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek says Mr Albanese chose to forego the conference amid other commitments and will remain in Canberra before attending the East Asia Summit and G20 meeting. She has dispelled concerns that Mr Albanese's choice not to attend COP27 could damage Australia's chances of hosting the 2026 summit. I think Australia is very well represented and the most important thing here is Australia has already demonstrated by the laws that we have passed that we are serious about addressing climate change uh, and the international community knows that. The Industrial Relations Bill proposed by the Labour government is expected to pass the House of Representatives this week. Minister for the Environment Tanya Plibersek has defended the project saying it will have a positive effect on lifting wages that is overdue. We are very confident that the industrial relations laws that we are proposing will see increases, pay increases, much needed pay increases for the lowest paid workers. And we know that for a decade, almost a decade, the previous government kept wages low. Uh, We know that the previous government said that low wages were a deliberate design feature of their economic architecture. Uh, We're in very different times now. The coalition opposes the bill on the ground that it caters to the will of unions and will create more strikes. Liberal MP Paul Fletcher has taken aim at the lack of debate, claiming the government is trying to force the bill through the House without a proper discussion. Why is Labor wanting to use its numbers to ram this through the House of Representatives? Labor needs to stand up for ordinary Australians uh, rather than the union bosses uh, and the coalition calls on Labor to allow this to be properly debated. Home Affairs Minister for Home Affairs Claire O'Neill says the immigration system in Australia is broken and faces grotesque issues, taking aim at her predecessor Peter Dutton. Ms O'Neill referred to cases when the system was used for human trafficking, such as the recent revelation that a man once condemned for his crime in the UK was let into Australia. Speaking to the ABC, she blamed, she blamed Peter Dutton, who headed the Australian immigration system for seven years. Um, there's a little bit of um, a political issue here for um, Peter Dutton. He was, you know, sort of went around the country talking about what a tough guy he was on the borders, but at the same time was presiding over a system which was being used to facilitate criminal conduct. And I'm really worried about that, and I think we need to get some answers about why that's occurred. But there's a big opportunity piece to this conversation here as well, and I don't want that to get missed. Mr O'Neill has initiated a review of Australia's immigration system to be conducted by a panel of three experts. Medibank has confirmed they will not pay the ransom that hackers have demanded to not release information from its data breach. The health insurance provider has announced the cyber criminals have accessed the names, dates of birth, phone numbers and email addresses of around 9.7 million current and former customers but did not access primary documents such as driver's licenses. Credit card and banking details have also banking details have also not been leaked. Medibank CEO David Koshka says that paying the demanded ransom could encourage the criminal to de- directly extort customers, and there's a strong chance that paying puts more people in harm's way by making Australia a bigger target. 
The federal government is warning Australians are likely to lose $4 billion to scammers this year, almost double the 2021 figures. Nearly 140,000 losses have been reported to authorities between January and August for this, of this year, costing consumers, businesses and the economy hundreds of millions of dollars. Financial Services Minister Stephen Jones says scammers are taking advantage of Australians when households are already facing monetary pressures through the rising cost of living. He says the response needs a combined government approach which will help deliver on Labor's election promise to set up a new anti-scam establishment. I'm delighted to announce that we're taking the first step in our anti-scam policy. Uh, We'll be establishing a national anti-scam centre through the ACCC to ensure that we can in real time have a coordinated and rapid response to scams that are moving their way through the economy. At least 19 people have died after a passenger plane crashed into Lake Victoria in Tanzania, trying to land at a nearby airport. Flight PW494, operated by Prison Precision Air, hit the water during storms and heavy rain as it was approaching Bukoba Airport, according to the state Tanzania Broadcasting Corporation. The plane was carrying 39 passengers, including an infant, as well as four crew members. Rescuers in boats rushed to the wreckage, which was almost fully submerged, to pull out trapped passengers, with local authorities reporting 24 survivors were saved by emergency services. CEO of Precision Air, Patrick Warner, says his company will provide support for victims and their families. We have opened a family assistance centre for the sake of passengers who are affected and the relatives who are following the rescue efforts. We've opened the centre to provide information of the incident. We urge journalists to disseminate the correct information from reliable sources. Political leaders from both sides of the divide have made their closing arguments to voters two days before the U.S. midterm elections. Former Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump have ended their campaigns in Pennsylvania, which has proven to be a key battleground state in determining who will control Congress. Mr. Obama is framing the election as a referendum on American democracy. Truth and facts and logic and reason and basic decency are on the ballot. Democracy itself is on the ballot. The stakes are high. While Mr. Trump is pushing his agenda that his his rivals are ill-equipped to lead the country. With your vote, you can reject left-wing maniacs. You can reject left-wing tyranny and proudly declare that America will always remain a free country. The party in control of Congress, currently President Biden's Democrat Democrat Party, often loses its majority in the midterms, so a shift to a Republican majority would not be surprising. But any dramatic political shift in the current climate could cause further unrest in a country increasingly divided over issues such as gun control, voting and reproductive rights. Back home, Attorney General Mark Dreyfus has written a letter to former Prime Minister Scott Morrison about information disclosed in the recently published book Plagued Australia's Two Years of Hell. 
Authored by political journalists Simon Benson and Geoff Chambers, the book provides a behind-the-scenes account of Scott Morrison's government during the pandemic. Last week, it was referred to the Attorney General's department amid concerns it may contain leaked cabinet information. In his letter to Mr. Morrison, Mr. Dreyfus says the disclosures of cabinet discussions and deliberations undermine cabinet confidentiality and security, adding that the ho- he hopes there will be no further incidences from the former government that compromise the integrity of the cabinet process. Victoria's Gambling regulator has fined Melbourne's Grand Casino $120 million for breaching its responsible service of gambling obligations. The Victorian Gambling and Casino Control Commission has imposed two fines on Crown as part of its disciplinary action based on the extensive findings of the 2021 Royal Commission. The Commission found the South Bank Casino had breached its code of conduct for responsible gambling over several years, failing to prevent gambling harm to its customers. VGCC Chairwoman Fran Thorne says the fines should send a powerful message to Crown that the Commission will not tolerate misconduct that exposes the community to increased risks of gambling harm. And to sport and in rugby league, Samoa is through to the World Cup semi-finals for the first time in history. It will face England for a spot in the final after a 2018 victory over Tonga in an intense quarter-final in Warrington. England humiliated Samoa 60-6 in the tournament opener, but the stakes will be higher when they meet again at the Emirates Stadium on Sunday, November 13. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Bruma partly cloudy day, 30 degrees, Perth mostly sunny 25, Adelaide sunny 29, Melbourne a sunny day, then a shower of 2, 25, Hobart mostly sunny 21, Albury Wodonga partly cloudy 24, Canberra showers and a possible storm 22, Wollongong mostly sunny 23, Sydney much the same 24, Newcastle sunny 25, Brisbane a shower of 2, 25, Townsville a mostly sunny day, 30 degrees, Cairns partly cloudy 31, one Alice Springs sunny thirty six Darwin a shower of two thirty four degrees and the Torres Strait Islands a partly cloudy day ahead and a top of thirty three degrees and that is NITV Radio News. You're listening to NITV Radio, and I'm your host today, Bertrand Tunendami. Coming up next in your program, we'll have a conversation with three members of the Indigenous Marathon squad competing in the New York and Athens marathons. I caught up with them shortly before their departure. We also look back at the flood disasters across the country, with communities across New South Wales and Victoria bracing themselves for more flooding. We also have a preview of the COP27 Environmental Summit currently underway in in Egypt with the question of who should pay for the loss of damage caused by a warming planet being the question that's most discussed at the summit. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I'm joined by three members of the 2022 Indigenous Marathon Project squad ahead of their departure to New York and Athens for their first marathon. The squad of 10 were selected from over 150 applicants and have gone from little to no running 
to selection to race in an international marathon over the past six months, which has included a rigorous training program, participation in major running events across Australia, and a commitment to study Indigenous leadership and health promotion. Now, before we explore the big event you're about to take part in, can you tell us about your respective journeys leading up to this massive endeavour? Morgan Lane, I'm an Arundel woman from Mwantua, Alice Springs. I um, first came into contact with IMF about two years ago um, when I seen it advertised on Facebook to start running on Thursday afternoons. So only once a week? That's where it started for me. Um, I'd already started walking and slowly running on my own outside of that, um, just making changes and looking for a healthier lifestyle. And then I seen that um, IMF were advertising for a running group on Thursday, so that's how I joined in with them. So almost a commitment uh, evolved in a more regular involvement, leading to now being able to compete on the world stage. From that, joining the Thursday Afternoon Run Club, um, I then seen that the IMP tryouts were coming up. So I tried out for IMP last year um, and I didn't get in last year and then I tried out again this year and I did get in. So now I am about a week away. So I'll be actually doing my international marathon in Athens in Greece. Yeah, so you're the one going to Athens. Uh, as for our other two guests, uh, they'll be competing in New York. Can you please share your respective journeys with uh, us as well, please? Hi, I'm Hayley Pymon. I'm a Wiradjuri woman with family ties to like Kudamundra, uh, Grongrong, Gundagai area, uh, born and raised on Darawal country, though, down in the Illawarra. The last few years I got told about the IMP through uh, several runners back home. I kind of just ignored it for a few years and then I got told consistently to apply for this year. I was a bit hesitant because I was um, planning on moving to New Zealand. I applied anyway and then I got, you know, my first time ever applying, which was, you know, quite amazing and I feel very um, lucky and fortunate to have gotten through. And besides uh, running uh, and getting involved in the Indigenous Marathon project, what do you do? Um, so besides, you know, training for a marathon and, you know, getting to the start line, and it's not even about winning for me, you know, winning is me completing the run and just, you know, being with my fellow squad members. But around that, you know, I've just, you know, working in a cafe at the moment and always been a sporty person, being, you know, involved in soccer and athletics and whatnot. So going from that to training for marathons, quite amazing. Um, I do have some future plans to, you know, also change my career and get more involved within the community around mental health and bullying and, you know, creating change within that aspect. Yeah, so getting involved with the IMP is just the beginning of a long journey in uh, personal development, well-being and many more. And uh, our third guest, uh, tell us about your journey so far as well. My name is Jamie Graham Blair. I'm a proud Tasmanian Aboriginal fella uh, currently living in Nipaluna Hobart. I come from a really strong family who for the last couple of hundred years have been living on Tyreecha or Flinders Island through the impacts of colonisation. But my tribes go back through kind of the northeast corner of Luchawida, Tasmania, that's Trollway and playing a marina. And so, yeah, I come from a really strong cultural background. My family are mutton birders, um, we're shell stringers, 
we speak a bit of language and dance, so quite, you know, um, strong in upholding and maintaining those cultural practices. Um, but my fitness journey didn't really start properly until kind of March last year, um, where I went mutton birding for my first full season. Um, and if you don't know what mutton birding is, it's where we go to these little tiny islands in the Bass Strait and we go and harvest these seabirds that they migrate back to these islands and nest in their little burrows every year and we, we go and harvest them. It's a massive cultural food source for us. Um, but I went back for my first season and I wasn't doing too well fitness-wise and I realised, you know, if I wanted to be a good birder like my uncles, like my grandfathers and grandmothers, I had to um, make a few changes. So I started going to the gym, I um, quit smoking, I quit drinking, started eating well. And then one of last year's graduates, Jai Strugnall, she messaged me and she's like, hey, you should apply for this thing. Obviously, she'd seen me trying to make a few good kind of decisions and change my lifestyle up a bit. I think she must have realised how good the program would have been for me at that point in my journey. And so I, I applied and, and managed to get on. Um, and since then, just been on the up and up fitness-wise, kicking goals, doing really well on all my milestone runs and um, inspiring from the sounds of it quite a lot of my mob to, to get into even just walking, you know, walking and running. I get quite a few of them joining and joining me on my little runs here and there as I'm training through Nipaluna Hobart. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of my journey. So you guys um, have gone through rigorous training. I remember talking to a past IMP competitor. They said your challenge is to get in shape in a really time, short time span getting into shape through grueling training conditions in tough weather conditions, almost military-style kind of um, uh, training. Uh, tell us about your training conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And six months to get into a better shape we're in at the start to marathon ready. So it's really, it's quite full on. And I'm, you know, I'm really, at the start, I was quite surprised to hear how successful the program was. But yeah, we're doing, you know, six or sometimes seven days a week of training, fitting that in within, it, within our regular daily lives. So all, all of us have jobs, all of us, you know, spend time working with community and caring, you know, for our community responsibilities that we all hold. So yeah, it's, it's, it can be quite full on. It started off relatively easy, I think. Not everyone has that thought, but it started off reasonably okay because of where I was at on my fitness journey already, but then slowly ramped up and kicked kicked us all in the bum. I think for me, it was probably our second block of training. So after our 10K that I was like, all right, if I want to get through this, I really have to commit. Um, and to commit, I have to put a lot of time and prioritize this training. I actually kind of found myself isolating from a lot of my social kind of things that I'd previously been engaged with. So I actually kind of came to realize that I was naturally dropping, not dropping, but maybe putting relationships on the back burner that weren't feeding my my fitness goals so I was kind of just naturally falling into really healthy cycles by only hanging around people who were helping me on that journey um, and I think that was that's quite a beautiful thing because then you surround yourself with like-minded people it's easy to motivate yourself because you're with motivated people healthier people um, and so you come to be it comes easier with time I guess with training and and working in that way but yeah that was my my experience with the training I really found it quite beneficial and I found that my my mental capacity and physical capacity both have drastically just skyrocketed from from even the six months of quite hard work. Yeah. And when you first started uh, in the program, how far were you able to run? Uh, I had some competitors could not even do a couple of kilometers when they first joined uh, 
and um, then uh, they went on to become confident enough to compete on the world stage. Before we move on to that next question, I just wanted to, you know, add on to what Jem was saying, like, you know, a lot of our squad members, we are from all different parts of the country. So some of us have trained in really wet conditions, some of us have trained in really hot, um, really cold conditions. But yes, our training um, can be, you know, it's a seven day a week thing, whether it's recovery, a small run or a long run. But it becomes just part of who you are and it becomes more than running like running is just our tool running is just what we do but the the training also helps um it helps our mind you know it helps our uh our mental health it puts us in a clear state of mind which then flows on to help you make better choices for yourself and influence the people around you so now although I am looking forward to maybe having a few shorter runs and a little break once we smash our marathons. This is a a lifestyle and this is uh, what we want to see for so many other people, that that it's just your norm to get up and move or get up and do something that makes you feel good. Maybe running wasn't where all of us thought we would start that journey, but now I don't know how normal it'll feel to not get up and (laughs) go for a run or move your body now. Um, Yeah. Yeah. How fit were you when you first joined the program? Uh, As I said, I remember talking to past competitors, uh, one in particular. She said she'd never run a long distance, but through training, persistence and perseverance, she was able to go there, get to a level where she was actually able to tackle the most competitive event on the planet. So I guess it varies for like across the squad. But for me personally, I um, last year I had run my first half marathon, so 21.1 Ks. So I was relatively fit, but, you know, previous to doing that and putting my mind towards that training last year, I hadn't run even a K walk, yeah, but not not run, yeah. At the start of, start of my training journey, I struggled with 3K. So now to go from 3K to my biggest run now is 30K mm. in six months. It's just in, incredible what your body can do if you really look after it and mm. put it to work. Yeah. Mm. What did you say? Um, just with my training before this, I've always been, you know, quite an active person all of my life. But I think the most I had run before this was probably 14Ks but that wasn't like nonstop. I'd probably stopped and walked a little bit or I didn't really understand pace and how to like look after my breathing. Whereas now, you know, I've run 30 kilometres and I was quite comfortable in that. And, you know, going from that to the marathon now, I'm quite confident in what I can achieve um, in the marathon. So, yeah, pre, pre-IMP to now, it's quite remarkable. The changes that I've seen not only within myself, but my squad members as well. Again, IMP is not just about running. Uh, According to the founders, the finishing line in Athens or in New York is just the starting point for you guys, uh, the starting point for another journey. Jamie, you've uh, kind of briefly outlined what your projects are. Uh, What about you, Haley and Morgan? What are your respective long-term goals, your future projects uh, stemming from uh, this uh, program? 
For me, once I finish my marathon, what I would like to do is go back home and really get involved with my community to encourage more. One of my whys is um, women in particular, um, especially around women that are my age that I sort of grew up with and I can see that they're not act, they're not moving, they're not active, and they. Um, I know the benefits of it. So if I can encourage that um, in my community and create a safe place where people feel comfortable to come for a walk, come for a run, or whatever it might be for them, maybe they want to ride a bike. I don't mind, but let's just get out the door together. The other thing that I would like to get involved in is looking to work with prisons and rehabilitation like rehab centres for people coming off drugs and alcohol to give them some sort of routine and something to work towards when you're in that recovery phase. How about you, Haley? What are your plans? Um, yeah, so what I'm hoping to plan and implement is change um, in the mental health system and around bullying. Um, you know, it's quite a heavy topic for myself going through mental health challenges growing up and seeing it, you know, within family and friends. It's just something that I want to help make a change, you know, within my community at home, but also, you know, travelling around, you know, schools and organisations and helping to make my difference and also to um, reduce the numbers in suicide, which is quite a close topic as well and, you know, something that really hits home. So I'm just, yeah, I'd like to really make my mark within, you know, the communities and make a difference. Now, before you pardon, um, I let you go back to your preparations for the big stage. The mic is yours. Anything you'd like to add to the conversation? I would just like to say that to anyone that's listening to this, um, look up IMF, look up IMP, see what we're about, reach out to anyone, all the previous grads, anyone, all of us that are currently in the squad, we're always up for a chat and we always want to start a conversation, especially if it's going to make people feel better or give them something new to try because I know how much it's changed our lives. So, and we would want that. I would want that for anyone else. Um, so, yeah, reach out. Um, I think personally for myself, like my motto... And something I've learned and been told and heard so much is get comfortable being uncomfortable. That's honestly just so true, I think, to every aspect in life. And if I wasn't uncomfortable in this situation, you know, training for a marathon and then, you know, gaining the confidence to want to go and help other people in the community, it's probably a waste of time, you know, and I probably wouldn't succeed as well as I want if I'm not uncomfortable in certain situations. Because if you're comfortable and you're just, you know, sitting on a linear line and you're, not, you're just stagnant and not really going anywhere, are you going to achieve, you know, okayness or are you going to achieve greatness? And I personally, I want to achieve, achieve greatness and I want other people to, you know, follow along and continue with their own journeys to um, achieve greatness. Um, yeah, I just quickly, before I actually get into my thing, um, applications for next year's squad, the 2023 IMP squad, open in mid-December. So if you're interested, uh, motivated from any of our words, um, look up on the website or on any of our socials and, and join, the, join the application. Also, just before Jam starts, I should also say that don't let anything from your past stop you. I, IMF and IMP are not about looking at your past. It's about looking at the future and how we can all work together. So um, give it a go. Believe in yourself. 
Now let me go. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, I'm happy. Okay. I'm happy. That was good. Um, I just want to say that the whole journey is really highlighted in me and myself within my spirit, just how strong my people are. Through, through this training, just personally, I've realized how resilient and how much strength I have in my own self. Um, but also the support from my community and from my family has really highlighted just how how beautiful my people are. Um, and so I'm really trying to use this platform to showcase that strength of my people because, you know, there's still that ongoing myth that my people are extinct, you know, that we, we, we no longer live on our island, we're no longer here. And so I'm really hoping to use this platform to quite loudly and proudly and visually and vocally show the world that not only we're just here surviving, we're thriving and we have been since long before invasion. So that's my little message. I also want to do a quick shout out to my auntie Wendell, my mum, my dad, my brothers and sisters, everyone back home um, for propelling me forward on this journey, for the support, for the love, for putting up with my whinging and my sore feet, all that stuff. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a huge journey, but it's one that, that I hope more Tazimo can jump on and, and benefit from because it's really, it's really special. It's really special. Haley, Morgan and Jamie, thank you very much for joining us on a short uh, notice. We look forward to seeing you crossing the finishing line in New York and uh, Athens, respectively. Good luck. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Australia's east is in the grip of its fourth major flood crisis this year due to a multi-year La Nina weather phenomenon typically associated with the increased rainfall. Communities across New South Wales and Victoria are bracing themselves for more flooding despite the rain easing over the weekend in some regions. Deborah Grock reports. Blue skies have returned to much of New South Wales and Victoria this weekend after days of rain and flash flooding. But as the State Emergency Services Minister Steph Cook has explained, that doesn't mean the danger is over. Whilst the weather conditions are easing for a short period of time right across New South Wales, the flood risk has not. Uh, so even if you are in a community where you are not at risk of inundation for your own home, uh, you may very well become isolated with rising floodwaters, uh, cutting roads uh, right across New South Wales at the present. State Emergency Services Assistant Commissioner Nicole Hogan says that the phenomenon is known as blue sky floods because water continues to move downstream through various catchments, even in the absence of storms. Much of the focus for emergency personnel at the moment is on Forbes. The central western New South Wales town is near the Lachlan River, which has a high watermark not seen since 1952. Ashley Sullivan is the New South Wales Emergency Service Strategic Leader. Our, our particular message today is that the floodwaters impacting Forbes and right across western and southern New South Wales are rising quicker than what we've seen before. The ground is very wet. Um, there is a lot of water around and the risk remains and will remain for some months to come. Australian Defence Force personnel have been deployed to Forbes, but New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet says around 200 others will be made available to communities right around the state who are also at risk of flash flooding. We expect these floodwaters to continue to rise. Uh, they are a source of inspiration for people on the ground, but they're also providing a significant assistance also with the Black Hawk helicopter help um, carry out night rescues should they be required um, over the next few days. 
Though much of the focus is on New South Wales, Queensland and Victoria have also come under fire. Queensland broke records for the highest level of rainfall last month, its eighth wettest October on record, while in Victoria more than 50 flood hazard warnings are active, with over 460 roads closed. Major warnings are in place at Achuka, Lower Moira, Barma and the Murray River downstream of Tokenwall to Barham. Bureau of Meteorology forecaster Dean Narramore says the whole east coast is affected to some extent. From southern Queensland all the way down into Victoria, we can see minor, moderate and major flooding occurring. Of particular concern are our many rivers across inland New South Wales, particularly the Murrumbidgee, the Lachlan and also for communities further north on the Namoi and upper parts of the Darling River. Back in New South Wales, the state member for Orange, Philip Donato, has urged everyone to follow official advice. One man's body has already been found after he and a second man were washed away trying to cross a flooded causeway west of Goulburn in the state's southern tablelands this week. Mr Donato says he doesn't want to see any more tragedies. And we're seeing the river or the the, the water rise at considerable levels just in the time that we've been here today. The message really is out there to uh, people to look after themselves. Don't drive through floodwaters if it's it's risky, don't risk it. Deborah Grook, SBS News. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. The harrowing impacts of climate change were made painfully clear in Pakistan this year when a third of the country was submerged by historic flooding. The cost of the disaster is now estimated to be more than $40 billion, a staggering figure in a developing nation. Dr Simon Bradshaw is a researcher on climate science and impacts at the Climate Council. He says it's yet another example of a low-income nation battling the worst effects of a crisis it's played little part in. We need to be addressing permanent loss and damage from climate change. Land and homes lost to rising seas, harvests being wiped out by extreme weather events. It's those who've contributed the least to the climate crisis that are the most vulnerable to its impacts and are paying the biggest price. The question of whether wealthier nations most responsible for global warming should take on the economic burden is expected to command significant attention at COP27. Representatives of the nearly 200 countries attending are to determine whether to establish a compensation fund for poorer countries on the front line. The Longford issue first championed a decade ago by Pacific Island nations. But Sophie Marginak, an expert in climate change law and litigation and human rights, says there has been little progress since. In an absolute failure of the finance to flow to least developed countries to help them with climate change adaptation as well as loss and damage. And we're hoping that this year the rich countries will get together to finally fulfil those commitments. Calls for compensation were rejected at the 2021 summit in Glasgow. This year it's hoped the issue will be front and centre, with Pacific Island nations leading the fight. Pressure is on Australia, among the world's largest polluters, to back its neighbours at the conference, particularly as it seeks to co-host the 2026 COP summit with countries in the region. Minister for Climate Change and Energy Chris Bowen says it's a chance to showcase the nation's progress. This is an opportunity, will be an opportunity if we win the bid. Uh, to show Australia's capacity to help the world as a renewable energy powerhouse. It's an opportunity to work closely with our Pacific family. 
Minister Bowen will lead the Australian delegation, which is returning with a new government and a new climate mandate. But some critics, including former Kiribati President Anote Tong, are questioning Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's decision not to attend. Dr Bradshaw from the Climate Council says it's crucial Australia makes clear its support for the Pacific. If Australia is serious about co-hosting a future round of these negotiations in partnership with the Pacific, then of course we need to be getting behind this long-standing call for real action, support and finance to address loss and damage from climate change. Earlier this year, the United Nations Human Rights Council handed down a world-first ruling ordering the federal government to compensate a group of Torres Strait Islanders. They argued the former Morrison government failed to adequately respond to the climate crisis unfolding on their island homes. Kokogul man and traditional owner of Masic Island, Yese Mosby, one of the claimants, is set to take the stage at COP to share his experience. We know and we hope and pray that this this case which we won will open a lot of doors for a lot of nations who cannot voice their their cry. Now the world can listen to them as well. The Albanese government is currently considering the UN decision and is expected to provide its response in March. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. us to the end of today's program Bertrand Tungandami I am Bertrand Tungandami thanking you for tuning in to NITV Radio today, I hope you enjoyed the program till next time bye for now Yalu Want to hear more stories like this? Listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. 